as we've all heard, over 2,500 years ago, Gautama Buddha, with his most deep and profound generosity of heart, offered the teachings and practices of liberation, liberation from suffering, directly out of his own experience. And for centuries following this, these teachings and practices have continued to be offered out of the generous heart of thousands of other beings all over the world. Many, many Mahakalpas before our Buddha, as Sharon called him the other night, before our Buddha came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to a small village. The villagers were very excited, very honored that a Buddha was going to come to their village. One of the things that they decided to do to show their great respect for this Dipankara Buddha was to cover the whole length of the path that the Buddha would walk along through the village so that he wouldn't get any dirt or any mud on his feet. One of the young men of the village arrived at a particular place by the path just before the Buddha arrived and found that this spot hadn't been covered. And in fact, it was somewhat muddy. So with great generosity of heart, this young man laid down over this muddy stretch of path so that the Buddha could stay clean by walking over his body. As the Buddha passed over him, this young man looked up and was profoundly moved and inspired by the incredible deep ease, the quiet strength, the grace and the beauty that this Buddha manifested. And in those moments of inspiration, this young man made a silent vow to himself that one day he would be a Buddha. The Pankara Buddha instantly knew of this young man's vow and of its sincerity and depth. And he looked down at him as he was passing with just the slightest acknowledgement, as if to say, yes, you will someday be a Buddha. And so many Mahakalpas later, and after many, many lifetimes of much, much practice and development into a being with great generosity and wisdom, this young man was reborn 
as Siddhartha Gautama, the about-to-be Buddha, our Buddha. Fred, both Fred and Sharon have each recently spoke about the parami of generosity. And this evening, we'll explore this quality of heart, this quality of mind, a bit more together. Generosity. It's a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness. And it's universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we receive, we practice generosity. We cultivate it in thousands and thousands of different ways. No matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. Many years ago, early one summer morning, I'm weeding and cultivating my garden. <coughs> my two-and-a-half-year-old son is playing nearby, and he wanders over to where I'm working, and with a big smile on his face, he thrusts a bunch of dandelions that he's picked. He thr thrusts them right at me. He's picked them out of the grass. A teenager in China, it's her birthday. As is customary in China, she gives her mother and her father a small gift on her birthday, honoring the love and the care that they've given her all her life. It's the day before Christmas in Taos, New Mexico. We go over to the light guard armory and fill the back of the pickup truck with boxes of food that have been collected over the recent weeks at drop-off points in town. We deliver the boxes to the many families, some of the many families, and some of the individuals who don't have the means to buy anything but the very barest necessities. At some point along the way in your practice, you decide that you want to sit a three-month retreat. And so you do. Another yogi offers you milk for your tea instead of putting it back in the fridge. You're moving ever so, so slowly on a particular day. And you don't feel pushed or rushed by anyone to speed up. In fact, you feel a silent, generous support all around you. 
you might have received an abundance of care packages from home. And so you share the contents with other yogis. A friend of mine has waited quite a number of years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit this retreat. And this year, everything's fallen into place. She calls me in September, about a week before the retreat begins, to tell me that she's giving up her spot because a very dear friend who's dying of cancer has asked her if she might consider being her caretaker. And so she does a different kind of retreat. Often in the evening after our teacher dinner in the staff dining room, Fred gathers up all the dishes that we've used for our dinner and takes them to the washing area. A young cab driver in Thailand, he and I have had a very inspiring conversation about Buddhism as he's driving me to my destination. And just as I'm getting out of the taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car, and he gives it to me. I'm surprised. and feel a lot of gratitude. Some day in your life, you've come home after a long, hard day, and your partner, or a friend, or your child, offers you a warm, loving smile. A three-year-old Iroquois Indian, American Indian child, sits in the middle of a circle of parents and many other tribal relatives, young and old. The child is given, in the midst of this circle, he's given delicious beverages and food and beautiful clothing and blankets and moccasins. He eats and drinks his fill and sits there in great, delicious comfort. And then a voice from outside of the circle calls out, I'm thirsty. And then another voice calls out, I'm cold. And another voice calls out, I'm hungry. The child is then led out of the circle to share drink with the thirsty, to share food with the hungry, to share blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. I'm attempting to uh, feed my eight-month-old granddaughter 
and she picks up a piece of banana and pushes it into my mouth. A small, very beautiful, rural and rustic retreat center offers some weeks each year of retreat time with full scholarships for those who spend a good portion of their lives working with helping those who suffer greatly in this world, the drug and alcohol addicted, abused women and children, those with mental illness. Yesterday, Joseph was in downtown Barrie and accidentally dropped his keys down between the seat and the center of his uh, center section of his car. And he stuck his hand down in there and tried and tried to get the keys out and ended up pushing them down further and couldn't, couldn't get them. Just couldn't do it. A stranger in the parking lot noticed that his, he was struggling and she came over, and with great determination and persistence, she managed to get the keys out for Joseph. And Joseph tells her, you're my hero. And she was happy. <laughs> we ask at a Sangha gathering in Taos for volunteers to do some construction to finish up the interior of our meditation center. One of the carpenters in the Sangha volunteers and comes in in the evening and on Sundays after he's finished work. We ask again in a few weeks for help with another task and he brightly offers again. And I, I look surprised at him and he says, more merit, more merit. I'm happy to help. Our generosity is endless, actually. And I'm sure we could spend the rest of this hour and many more hours just sharing how and what we've given, how and what we've received. This cultivation of the heart from every direction. And yet we live in a culture that so strongly encourages us to, to yearn for, encourages us to acquire, encourages us to accumulate, and then to cling and to grasp onto our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulation of opinions and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And through all of this, we're then conditioned to identify ourselves, to think and to feel that this is who we are, both to ourselves and to others, through all of our accumulations, material and otherwise. I think that it takes great courage, actually, with all of this conditioning to enter into a spiritual practice that encourage us towards, encourages us towards the opposite of this. 
So here we are, practicing to see, practicing to come to know the truth of ourselves underneath and beyond all of this tremendous conditioning. Someone once asked Gandhi, why do you practice so much? Why do you serve all of these people? And Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. Actually, they asked him, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all of these people? And he said, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. This is from the Buddha. Just as a hundred peaked, lightning garlanded, thundering cloud raining on the fertile earth fills the plateaus and gullies, even so, a person of conviction and learning, wise, having stored up provisions, gives to those in need, delighting in giving. That is his thunder, like raining clouds. That shower of merit, abundant, rains back on the one who gives. So in truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity are twofold. We give to help to free others, and we give to help to free ourselves. This is the fullness of generosity. In the teachings of the Buddha, the practice, the development of the heart of generosity is in a sense the foundation and the seed of spiritual development. It's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. It's the ground of compassion. As we relinquish, as we let go of the forces that bind us, as we practice non-clinging, as we begin to stop sticking to and identifying with the energies of greed, the energies of anger, fear, jealousy, we begin to see through them. We more and more often come to see and to know these energies, to experience these energies, not as solid, substantial forces, not as me, not as mine, but as ephemeral thoughts flitting through the mind, as changing sensations coming and going, and often quite, quite quickly. As we begin to see clearly through these forces that bind us, they no longer are able to hold water, so to say. Our clear seeing makes holes in the bucket and transformation begins to happen. The beautiful qualities, the energies of loving-kindness, the energy of compassion, the energy of empathetic joy, the energy of generosity, then have the ground and 
the space to grow and flourish. Our limits that seem so set, our limits begin to open out. And we begin to experience a spaciousness of heart and mind that's grounded in a sense of calm, confidence, and clarity. A sense of connection to beings, a sense of connection to life, begins to be experienced in very tangible ways for us. As we practice generosity, we begin to see and feel ourselves growing and changing. The development and deepening of the quality of generosity counteracts the energies that limit, the energies that bind and constrict us. The development of generosity is a powerful antidote to craving and clinging. In its largest sense, generosity is not giving away anything, not giving away anything at all. It's really about the inner quality of non-clinging, the inner quality of letting go, of relinquishing, the practice of generosity often very powerfully opens us up to these liberating energies, the liberating energies of non-clinging, letting go, relinquishing. So in this sense, our practice is really a seamless circle that keeps expanding outward with no fixed line Delineated, delineating a bounded edge. We learn through our practice the truth of giving and receiving, that it's a natural law. We learn the balance, the natural balance therein. And it's really important that we begin to see ourselves in this balance and not give out of some imagined idea of perfection. We must start just where we are, within whatever our capacity is at any given point in our life. If we start here and we keep practicing, it's actually inevitable that our limits will move out. And amazingly, we begin to find out that there's nothing really to hold on to anyway, no matter how hard we try. There's the story that one of my sons uh, told me a while ago about an extremely wealthy man who died. And people were talking about his great, great riches. And someone asked how much he had left out of his great, great riches, how much he had left behind for others. And one person answered, 
Why, of course, everything. He left everything. And so we do. We leave everything. The Tibetans have um, a practice that I really like, uh, a practice for the very miserly, the very stingy of us. People who have trouble even giving to themselves. The practice is to uh, take something very ordinary, something one might not think of as being particularly valuable. They often begin the practice with a potato. You hold the potato in one hand, then you pass it to the other hand. (laughs) (laughs) Then you pass it back to the first, and back again, back and forth, passing the potato until it gets easy to pass the potato. (laughs) Very practical practice. (laughs) And if one's uh, motivated, one's inclined to continue with the practice of generosity in a particular way, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects and eventually moves on to practicing with a small mound of precious jewels. These jewels symbolizing all of the accumulations that one has accumulated since beginningless time. The practice is that the jewels are symbolically offered over and over and over again, offered to the Buddha, Offer to the Dharma, offer to the Sangha, offer to all beings everywhere, over and over and over again. It's said that the greatest gift is in the act of giving itself. Traditionally in the Buddhist teachings, there are three kinds of giving that are spoken of. There's what we could call beggarly giving, and that's when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we give, at least inwardly. In this kind of giving, we give the least of what we have, and afterwards we might wonder if we should have given at all. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving, and we give open-handedly with two hands. We take what we have and we share it because it seems it feels appropriate. It's a clear giving. And then there's uh, the type of giving that could be called kingly or queenly giving. This is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. 
We give the best we have instinctively. We give it graciously. We think of ourselves only as the temporary caretakers of whatever's been provided, as owning nothing. In this, there's no giving, really. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects to remain in the natural flow of things. I'd like to share uh, with you a story, a happening in my life actually, that was one of the most powerful experiences and learnings that I've ever had about generosity. About 16 or 17 years ago, along with my uh, Buddhist interest in practice, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And he used to come once or twice a year uh, to the area in Michigan that I was living in. And he'd come once or twice a year to teach us. Well, this particular year, I invited him to come and stay in my house which, um, by the way, was the same house that burned down uh, about a year or two later. This was a small house, an old log cabin, five-room cabin, out in the Michigan woods. And at that time, two of us lived there, one of my sons and myself. So the afternoon of Wallace's arrival came, and uh, quite an old jalopy of a car, kind of a mid-sized old jalopy, pulled up into the driveway. And first, uh, Wallace got out. And he's, he's quite a large man, quite a big man. He's six feet three or four inches tall and very big-boned. And he was wearing his uh, cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat, which made him look quite a bit larger, even. And after he got out, it was um, like one of those cars in the circus, when people just keep pouring out one after the other after the other. And as a child, you're just totally amazed that so many people can fit in such a little car. That's how my son and I felt as we watched seven people get out of this little old jalopy. All of Wallace's helpers and family members. We hadn't been told ahead of time how many people would be coming to stay with us for these 10 days of teaching and sweat lodge ceremonies. And as it turned out, There were nine and sometimes ten people living in our tiny house for that ten-day period. Well, that afternoon I thought, how will we all live here? How will we all eat? How will we all sleep in our tiny house? Well, it was amazing. The space seemed to expand 
People were sleeping here and there. People were sleeping everywhere, actually. And food arrived. People would, uh, other people, not the ones that were staying there, but other people would arrive in the afternoons to meet and to listen to Wallace as he talked and shared with all of us his earth wisdom, as we used to call it. There were sweat lodges every night, which began after dark and finished at one o'clock in the morning. And you can't eat dinner before you do a sweat. So at one o'clock in the morning, myself and one of the, my friend who was staying at the house to help me cook, would put together a big dinner at 1 a.m. After we'd return around that time from the sweat lodge area, there would be food outside the house, on the counters, in the little kitchen, and also we had cooking to do. And there was always enough food, abundant food. I had to completely let go of my schedule, my preferences. All of through this 10 days, it's 10 days and nights, uh, Wallace just continued to be very present and offering his time, his wisdom, from the great generosity of his heart. And he and most of his family and friends continued to smoke lots of cigarettes, drink huge quantities of soda pop, and um, want to eat lots and lots of meat. All of those things not being a part of my lifestyle. So letting go of my preferences of time, schedule, food, generally letting go of my preferences and my habits of living. Not so easy sometimes. But sometimes uh, during those 10 days, it was very easy, actually. Some afternoons, there would be as many as 15 to 18 people in this little house talking with and listening to Wallace in our living room. And the house never seemed crowded. It just seemed to keep expanding to be able to hold whoever was there. And as I've mentioned, we had an amazing abundance of food that just seemed to endlessly appear. Mostly we never knew who left it. It just was there. The last evening um, of Wallace's stay, he and his family and helpers wanted to do a ceremony uh, in the middle of our living room, a ceremony of gratitude, a ceremony of thanksgiving for myself and for my son and the others who had helped, helped to support these 10 days of practice. 
a circle of sharing, a circle of generosity. We all contributed to making an altar of objects from nature, from our area in the middle of the living room. And then we had a circle of sharing words, words of appreciation, of gratitude, words of love. And then Wallace and his uh, family and friends gave my son and I beautiful treasures that they had brought with them from Colorado and California. And then Wallace spoke. And he spoke about how when one offers, when one gives from the heart of one's surroundings, one's home, it expands and it never feels crowded. He spoke about when one gives of one's material possessions, one's food, objects of seeming ownership, when one gives those, that kind of giving, there's always enough. He said there's even abundance. And he spoke about when one gives from one's heart, when one gives freely, when one gives openly from the heart, one never feels empty, never feels alone, never feels separate. He said that when one gives openly and freely from the heart, there's always connection, caring, a seamless circle of spaciousness and ease, he told us. A seamless circle of abundance and love. And so the last evening after 10 days, uh, 10 days and nights of teachings, of sweat lodges, of living and eating and sharing together, That last night, there was a very full house of people, all participating together in this very beautiful sharing circle of generosity. And the next morning, everybody left, except my son and I. And he and I stood in the middle of our living room. And as we stood there looking around, we were quite amazed at how our house seemed to have shrunk. The space that had been so expanded over these past 10 days in a kind of circular, seamless 10 days of endless generosity coming and going from so many directions and in so many ways in this boundless space of our house, we were quite amazed at how tiny our house seemed again. 
And we both had this same feeling as we spoke it to each other. We looked at each other and said, had this really happened? Had this happened here? Was this the same place? It seemed almost magical. Our hearts felt so open in those moments, so connected, so expanded, in a boundless way, as our house had been with so many people for so many days. And so we practiced generosity in this seamless circle, giving to others, giving to ourselves, over and over and over again. This power of giving and the energy of generosity just keeps growing. It grows and it flows within us like the great rivers of the world. And we begin to know it and live it quite naturally, as it is a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness. We begin to know it as who we are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.